Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right. One of the difficulties of preaching your way through a whole book of the Bible is managing to always have something new and exciting to share. And so for a preacher, it becomes terribly inconvenient when Jesus seems to be following a similar theme for a while or when he seems to keep coming back to the same issue again. No preacher wants to come across as being repetitive. No preacher wants to come across as being repetitive. We don't want to be repetitive. You you, you get the picture, right? And and not many people want to turn up this week and get pretty much exactly the same message as what they got last week. And nor do we want to turn up this week and hear the message that we heard maybe four or five weeks ago and then another couple of weeks before that. Um, But sometimes that's exactly what we need. I reckon too often I'm like those original disciples Sometimes Jesus would teach them something. Sometimes it would be something really confronting and, and um, something that he'd really challenge them on. Yet you read a little bit further on in the gospel, it might be in the very next scene or in a few pages on, and we realise, hey, these blokes haven't learnt the lesson at all. They still don't get it. And something I've discovered is usually when we see a repeated theme in the Gospels, when Jesus just seems to be hammering the same thing over and over and over again, well, yes, it's because the disciples are thick and they're not getting it, but it's also because he's telling us something that we need to have hammered into us. You see, it's not only the disciples who are thick. I'm thick. And I'm not going to tell you a lot that you're thick 
but I think that's probably just because I don't need to. Um, sometimes we know stuff in our heads, but we haven't yet put it into action. And I reckon that could be very much the challenge for us today. It, it's not a matter of that wretched preacher harping on about that same thing again. It's a matter of shifting what we know in our heads to our hearts and then working it out in what we do. So what's Jesus been hammering us with? Well, it's been about denying self and not promoting self. It's been about humbling ourselves, not thinking of ourselves as too highly instead of, and for us being servants to others. Last week, Jesus summed things up with many who are first will be last and the last will be first. A couple of weeks before that, the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest and Jesus had told them, if anyone would be first, he must be servant of all and, sorry, he must be last of all and servant of all. Another time he took a little child and he said, don't hinder the little ones like this. The kingdom of God is such as these. Jesus has just kept hammering this into his disciples over and over and over again. Have they got it yet? No, they haven't. And so we continue with it today. Let's start at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Now, I'm not really sure at this point who were amazed and who it was that was afraid. Maybe it was the 12 apostles who were amazed and the larger group of followers were the ones who were afraid. Or maybe it was the other way around. I don't know. And it probably doesn't really matter. But what Mark is revealing here is there was a very real sense of foreboding expectation. Right? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the religious capital. Uh, there's this sense of expectation. What's going to happen when Jesus gets there? But at the same time, if the robot was there, you would have been going, warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. Now, if you don't get that, you can ask your parents and they'll tell you all about it. Or you can go to YouTube and look up Lost in Space and watch an episode of Lost in Space and you'll get it. But there, there was a sense of impending danger, imminent danger ahead. Right? So in the gospel already, there's been a number of times when the religious heavyweights from head office have travelled all the way up north to confront Jesus. Basically, they've gone all the way there just to have it out with him. And every time, their intentions are very clear. They're going to confront this young upstart and reveal him as the fraud that they believed that he was. But of course, every time that he came, they came up against Jesus, they came out of it looking more than a little bit silly. I mean, like they were ever going to prevail in a theological debate against the Son of God. And so they'd returned to head office with their tail between their legs and they'd planned and they'd plotted how they're going to best be able to do away with Jesus. And that's why the people were amazed that Jesus was now heading into the capital. Right, he was heading into danger. And the words of Jesus, well, they don't really do anything to allay those fears, but they also reveal something about the crucifixion that we often don't pick up on. 
See, when it comes to the crucifixion, we usually focus on the physical pain, on the physical torment and the physical death of Jesus. Uh, those who are, of us who are a bit more spiritual, we might sort of pick up on the spiritual pain and the spiritual torment. But here in the Gospel of Mark, particularly in this Gospel, it gets revealed to us what some of the greatest cost was to Jesus in the whole crucifixion thing. It was humiliation. Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Right Now, they weren't alone on that road. There would have been thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people on the road at the same time. Everybody was heading up to Jerusalem. It was the great pilgrimage to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. So it would have been like peak hour traffic. It would have been like, like the Bruce Highway on the first day of the school holidays. If you've ever been there, you don't get very far very fast. And he says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, what, what an insult that is. The chief priests were God's representatives. They were the ones who were meant to be serving God. And yet, they're the ones who are going to put the Son of God on trial and sentence him to death. But the humiliation doesn't end there. You see, under Roman law, they didn't even have the authority to carry out the execution. They could condemn him. But they couldn't do anything about it. So the next step was for them to hand him over to the Romans, to hand him over to the Gentiles. And what a humiliation that was, to hand the Son of God over to a godless people, to the heathen, the idolaters, the fate of the Son of God in the hands of the heathen. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. That's all about humiliation. The Lord our God is the one to whom it is right for us to give worship and honour and praise. He, he's the one before whom the creatures in the throne room of heaven fall down before him by day and by night, saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And here we have the heathens spitting on him, mocking him, flogging him, taunting him, baiting him, ridiculing him. Now, I don't know about you, but I actually personally would rather bear physical pain than to be humiliated. How much more do you think the God who deserves worship suffers with the injustice of humiliation? Now, in the context of this ominous revelation of what lies ahead before Jesus, this path of suffering and humiliation that he's going to endure. How would you expect the disciples to respond? He's just told them, he's just been talking about everything that he's going to give. 
And then the disciples come out with a bout of pettiness. What were they thinking? We've got the two brothers, James and John. They came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus is like, well, I'm not going to. You better spit it out. What, what do you want? I'm not going to say yes before I know what you want. And they said, well, grant to us that, that one of us can sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left hand in glory. Now, I don't really know what they meant by this. Most preachers I've heard see it as James and John not at all understanding that Jesus is going to die and they see it that Jesus is that James and John are still picturing that, that Jesus is going to be this great military leader who's going to ride into, to, into Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to mobilise the people behind him and they're going to have this great insurrection and they're going to kick the Romans out. They see it as Jesus then becoming the Messiah, King of Israel, the one that they'd been waiting for. Right, So from that perspective, we're seeing it as the two brothers, James and John, lobbying Jesus, hey, we want to be your generals. right? We want to be your chief advisors. We want to be your most trusted confidants. We want, I want to be your, your 2IC and your 3IC. Now, that's pretty much the understanding that we often get told, but I'm not really sure that that is what's going on here. It could mean that. It could mean that they're lobbying Jesus so that they can be his two most trusted confidants. But these two brothers, along with Peter, had already caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. These are two out of the three blokes who had gone up a mountain with Jesus. And Jesus had been transfigured before their very eyes. His clothes had become radiant, intensely white. And Moses and Elijah were there and the voice of God had come out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? They had already witnessed the glory of Jesus. I'm not so sure that they were focusing on the concept of a physical kingdom. In fact, I'm sort of thinking not. When they asked to sit on thrones beside Jesus... When he comes in his glory, I sort of suspect that they had the right idea about what it meant for Jesus to come in glory. But even so, they had a very wrong idea about greatness and about spiritual greatness. It's interesting that when they asked Jesus that, he didn't say, no way. He didn't say that, did he? He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? They said to him, yeah, we can. See, Jesus was going to suffer. And so were James and John. In Acts chapter 12, we read how King Herod had James killed with the sword. And when he realised how popular that made him, he decided he'd kill a few more. We also know that John was later imprisoned and exiled to the island of Patmos. But even though they too would be persecuted, that didn't guarantee that they were going to be the ones who got the privileged positions alongside Jesus. 
And in fact, the, the very fact that they were lobbying for those positions probably would have put them at the bottom of the list. But the other 10 disciples, well, they didn't really do that much better. They were cranky at James and John, and probably they were most cranky because they'd beaten them to the punch. James and John had tried to get in ahead of them and get their seats booked before they did. And speaking into this situation, Jesus said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was going on here was they were seeking significance and power or influence. It's a very human trait to crave significance. We want our lives to mean something. We long to have some form of recognition. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be appreciated. We want to be known as somebody who's achieved something worthwhile. And it's not only worldly desires. Even when it comes to serving God, most of us want to have some significance. We want to achieve something of significance. We still crave significance. It's just a different sort of significance that we crave. We still long to have recognition. It's just a different sort of recognition that we long for. We still have this human craving to be acknowledged and to be appreciated. It's just a different sort of craving to be acknowledged and appreciated. Now, I don't know if you guys realise this or not, but particularly for people like pastors of churches and, and missionaries or whoever, people who have left their jobs to serve Jesus, uh, this is a very real trap that we can fall into. It's a trap that I fall into to crave significance. We, we need to feel that what we're doing is worthwhile. And so we look for some kind of affirmation that what we're doing is significant. In some churches, um, there's a hierarchy, right, where you sort of climb the ladder and there's always another step so you can become more prominent in an organisation. You have a bit more power, a bit more influence, um, be better known. So you can see it in the titles. You might climb from being a mister to a reverend to a right reverend, or if you do some extra studies, you could become a reverend doctor, or you could become the most reverend. Or in a different church stream, it goes from lay people to deacons to priests to a, to a bishop to a cardinal to the pope. There might be some more steps in there that I don't know about. But then again, there might be a different tradition where you might have a youth pastor and then you might become a pastor or you could become a senior pastor. And then, of course, there's people who are conference speakers. And then the really important people have written a book, haven't they? They become an author. 
And then you've got the international speakers, right? We, we have these levels that we climb up where, where we're seeking significance and we're getting significance and we're getting recognition and people are acknowledging us and appreciating us. Then, of course, there's a numbers game. Now, of course, we pastors, we're, we're really good at saying, oh, no, numbers don't matter. They lie. They lie. I don't think every time that I've gotten together with, with a bunch of pastors, I don't know, it's, it's not long until over smoker, you're meeting somebody, and one of the first questions is, oh, yeah, so where do you do, where are you from? Oh, yeah, what's church? Oh, how big is your church? How many on a Sunday? And, and we always talk numbers. Being from a little church out in the bush, I could never win that competition, particularly on a cold morning. Um, that's if anyone ever saw it as a competition. But even so, even I crave significance. For example, in Bush Disciples here, my main ministry, the most time that I spend is in the teaching ministry. And I spend a fair bit of time preparing for the messages each week. Is it worth it? I remember sometimes it happened um, years ago now when we weren't quite as big as we are now. Where I might have had a difficult topic to preach on. I might have taken three full days or more to prepare for it and then turned up and I, know, I think the smallest congregation we ever had was about seven here and we go out in the bush into some of the other places and we might have only had one or two. And you sort of think after all that preparation and everything, all that studying, praying and preparing, was it worth it? I keep reminding myself, though, that, hey, God is doing something significant in Bush Disciples. And most of the time, we don't even see it. And, and it's something I didn't know at the time, but it was just growing and growing. It was something that God was doing. And it was something that we never planned. By the way, hello, the Bonjean Church of Christ. Have you got the picture of them there? They sent us this photo the other day, and I never actually got around to putting it up. Um, that's the Bonjean Church of Christ saying, greetings to us in the name of Jesus. Um, that's pretty much the, an average gathering there, I think. And, and so hello also to the hundreds of people who listen to this message, will listen to this one individual message over the next couple of years. Sometimes I go to the Bush Disciple website and have a look at some stats, and I did it the other night to just see how the downloads are going. And even though we're a tiny church, most people in the world have never even heard of us. We're based in a little town that most people will never visit. And in a month, individual messages are now downloaded 30 or 40 times in the first few weeks. But we've got hundreds of messages up now, which means that we're now into the thousands every month that messages are being downloaded. And even though most people who are using this Bible teaching, we, we don't even know who they are or where they're from, the audio downloads from the podcast just continue to increase. Nearly every month it increases. Do you know what's happening? God is doing something that we never planned. God is doing what God does. And he's just using this simple teaching to touch lives with it. And then people have grown and so they then share with their friends, hey, maybe you might grow too if you listen to this teaching and, and it's just growing. And so for me, I see those stats 
and I get a bit of affirmation. Oh, what we're doing must be significant. And I know that some of you here as well find this as an, as an encouragement for you too. The Lord is using this little church beyond what we've ever imagined. It's become something significant. But you know what? As I read today's Bible reading and knowing how I crave significance, I realise I'm pathetic. The way we crave significance, the way I crave significance, it's pathetic. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to be humiliated and crucified. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we crave significance. We delight in recognition. We find a sense of worth in something as trivial as stats. That's tragic. See, whether it's living in the world or whether it's serving Jesus, sorry, in serving Jesus, having a quest for significance, having a quest for greatness is pointless. It's an empty pursuit. In the kingdom of God, greatness isn't achieved by challenging up our successes. It's not achieved by recognition. It's, it's not even achieved by doubling the size of a church or by excelling as an international speaker. It's not achieved by racking up a number of downloads on a podcast. Greatness isn't achieved by the number of Facebook friends you have. It's not achieved by having a whole heap of likes on whatever your last social media post was. In the kingdom of God, greatness comes in the form of servanthood. Servanthood. You got that? That's where greatness comes from. But where are the limits to that, you might ask? What happens when you start to feel, well, I've given enough? What about me? It's my turn. I've given enough. It's time for me. No, it's not. It's not a time for craving significance. Nor is it a time for grasping for power or influence. Some of the most dysfunctional churches I've encountered were dysfunctional because individuals in that church always wanted to have things their way. They enjoyed having influence. They enjoyed exercising power. Now, Jesus drew a comparison between national systems of government and how the church is supposed to be. Those who are considered rulers, they lorded over them. And the mega rulers, they exercised their authority over them. Essentially, what they say goes. 
but it shall not be so among you. In the kingdom of God, we don't get to be great by grasping for power or influence or significance. And we don't even get great by exercising power or by grasping to to be the one who calls the shots. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Godly leadership in a church, it's all about servanthood. Jesus has been telling us this over and over and over again. I think we know this in our heads. We just need to move it from our heads to our hearts and put it into action. I'm here to serve you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to serve you in the name of Jesus. And you're here to serve each other in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we know very well that the first will be last and the last will be first. But Lord, we ask that you would shift this from being just knowledge in our heads and shift it to being a heart attitude. Lord, help us to be servants as you were a servant. Lord, forgive us for all the times when we've craved significance, for when we've grasped for power or influence, for when we've looked for the top spots. Lord, let us be a people who serve. Let us not be a people who are seeking recognition in this world and not even being a people who are seeking reward in the life to come but simply being a people who serve for the sake of the other because our Lord and Master is the one who served. Lord, we thank you that you came as a servant and you gave your life as a ransom. You gave your life to buy us back. Lord, may we now honour you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.